I read a book recently by Francis Schaeffer entitled A Christian Manifesto. And in this book, which I would encourage you to read, it's a very challenging, thought-provoking book. In this book, uh, Francis Schaeffer advances the view that in certain situations, it is mandatory that Christians disobey civil authority. That's a good question for us to ask ourselves and to seek to answer. Under what conditions is it permissible or even necessary that I, as a Christian, disobey governing authorities? And this extends into the question, under what uh, circumstances is it permissible or necessary for me to uh, disobey a direction from my employer, uh, disobey a command from my parents, uh, perhaps go against the wishes of my husband or my wife? When is it necessary that we do these things? Well, the passage that we will look at today in Acts chapter 5 raises this issue, so I'd like you to turn there with me, if you would, this morning. We'll begin in verse 12, and uh, our goal will be to get through verse 42, so we've got a lot of territory to cover today, so we will have to move with some pace. Now, the paragraph that we studied last week contain the story of what happened to Ananias and Sapphira, and following that account, Luke intersperses into his narrative a summary account here in verses 12 to 16. He does this repeatedly throughout his historical account in Acts to give us kind of a bird's eye view of the characteristic activities that were taking place in the life of the early church at this time. He singles out about five things that were characteristic of the church during this period of time, generally speaking, and we find that in verses 12 to 16. Let me read that with you. And at the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. But none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women, were constantly added to their number to such an extent that they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and pallets so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them. And also the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits and they were all being healed. First thing that Luke tells us about this period of time is that it was a time of miracles, that continuously at the hands of the apostles, signs and wonders, miraculous intervention of of God's power into human life were taking place. Uh, Predominantly, these seem to have been healing miracles, and God did this to, uh, to validate and to authenticate the truth of the gospel message. And Luke is careful to point out that the apostles at this period of time were the only ones that had this ability bestowed upon them by God. We will see later in Acts that Stephen was given this uh, gift from God, and uh, uh, let's see, one other guy I'm thinking of, Philip. Yes, Philip was also given this gift. And of course it was eventually extended to Paul as an apostle. 
but they were given the ability by God to perform these miracles which substantiated the truth of the gospel during this time. Now, the second thing that Luke points out is that this was a time of harmony as well. They were all with one accord. And that's always a mark of the presence of the Spirit in a body such as ours, is when there is a sense of harmony, a sense of unity, a sense of oneness among us. And any time this is absent, when we become characterized by, uh, by criticism, by fault-finding, by backbiting, that's a sure sign that there is an absence of the Spirit's work among us. Now, Luke points out that the early church at this time met in what's called Solomon's Portico. This was a kind of a roofed colonnade at the eastern end of the temple precinct there. It was up against the wall that looked out over the Garden of Gethsemane and the Mount of Olives. And there were a series of columns uh, through this long uh, portico that was covered with a roof. And it looked out onto an open courtyard just to the west. It was a fairly sizable open area. And it was a large enough area to accommodate the full-scale large meetings of the church. So this is where they would uh, hold uh, what we uh, call our Sunday morning services, out in this open-air courtyard in the eastern end of the temple area. Now, Luke uh, thirdly says that this was also a time of reluctance on the part of some people. He says that there were many people in Jerusalem who did not have the courage to be identified with the church. They did not dare to associate with the church. And I think we can understand why if we remember that this summary account follows the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And this story circulated in Jerusalem. People began to become aware of some of the risks identified with uh, associating with this group of people. And it made them understandably reluctant to to cast their lot. And I suppose... uh, same thing would be true for us. If people started falling over dead in our Sunday morning services, it might affect our attendance figure somewhat as well. But Luke goes on to say that despite this reluctance on the part of the people, they had a, a great deal of respect and admiration for the church. Uh, even though they had some understandable reserve about throwing in with this group, they nevertheless had a great admiration for them. And I think this is because of what Luke has singled out in the past, that they saw the way in which these early Christians loved one another. They saw that they were developing deep personal relationships with one another, and they admired that. They saw that these Christians were willing to sell their land and possessions in order to meet the needs of other Christians. And this likewise impressed them. And then the fifth characteristic that... Luke singles out is that uh, paradoxically, despite this reserve on the part of many, nevertheless, this was a time when evangelism was on the increase because people were so drawn to the quality of life they saw in this early church, they were willing to overcome their fears and become members of Christ's body because of the quality, the supernatural quality of life that they saw it drew them like like a magnet. And uh, it was, uh, you know, Luke says it was rapid evangelism. Multitudes of men and women were, were joining up uh, under the banner of Christ at this point. Now, uh, Luke suggests that this created something of a problem for Peter. Peter was the leader of the apostolic band. And evidently, he, more than the other apostles, carried out a ministry of healing. 
And evidently he was accustomed to responding to individual pleas and he would go into private homes and lay hands on the sick and they would be healed. Well, the church grew so rapidly that Peter was no longer able to respond uh, individually to all of these requests. So what the people began to do is rather than uh, trying to get Peter into their home, they would take the sick and the diseased and they would carry them out on cots and they would set them in the streets. They figured out the route that Peter took to and from the temple and so they would lay their sick in the streets and in the squares of the city along Peter's path to the temple. And they would try to position their sick family members in such a way that as Peter passed by, uh, his shadow cast by the sun would fall on these sick people. You had to know your geography a little bit. You wouldn't want to be on the uh, west side of the street at the wrong time of the day. But they positioned them so that Peter's shadow would fall on them. And evidently, Luke suggests this was effective. That just as the uh, Lord's, uh, the hem of the Lord's garment was effective in healing, so Peter's shadow was. Nothing magical about it, simply God's power released through Peter in an indirect manner. And many people were being healed in this fashion. And the word was also, we can see, beginning to spread to the uh, suburban areas of Jerusalem. Uh, Luke points out that people from all of the cities around that area began bringing their sick into the city so that they might be healed by Peter. Luke is a, the historian here of the book of Acts, and he was also a trained physician. And you'll observe that he carefully distinguishes in verse 16 between those who were sick and those who were afflicted with unclean spirits. Uh, you will occasionally read the thinking of some that, uh, who feel that the early Christians were so unsophisticated in these matters that they attributed every disease to demonic activity. Well, that's not true. And Luke is very clear to distinguish what was simple physical illness from what was a result of demonic activity. And as a trained physician, he was well qualified to make this kind of judgment. Now, there are some today in, in the body of Christ who tend to make the same association. There is a tendency on the part of some to identify all illness and disease as a result of direct demonic activity, and they will spend a good deal of time seeking to exorcise uh, the demons from sick people when it's completely unnecessary. I even read of a man in the southern Florida who was uh, going around uh, exorcising the uh, demon of uh, post-nasal drip in order to, uh, to get people back on their feet. But uh, we need to realize that uh, sickness is often just that, just sickness, just illness, and has nothing directly to do with demonic activity. So it was a time, uh, Luke tells us, of great excitement and enthusiasm in the body. And nevertheless, uh, we find that it was also a time of increasing pressure. And this is what Luke turns his attention to in verse uh, 17 and forward. But the high priest rose up along with all his associates, that is, the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. And they laid hands on the apostles and put them in a public jail. The uh, high priest here instigated this opposition movement to the apostles. And this is significant because the high priest was the single most uh, 
prominent and important individual in Jewish life. He was the president of the Sanhedrin, their ruling body. He was the one man in the Jewish population who could enter the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement. He was the, the personal representative of the people in any dealings that they had with uh, Rome. So he was the, uh, the single most important figure in, in Palestine. He's very much like uh, Ronald Reagan is for us today. This would be very much like us being called on the carpet by the president into the Oval Office and being asked to account for our behavior. It was that uh, of that magnitude. Now, the high priest, uh, his associates are identified here as Sadducees. The Sadducees, as you are aware, uh, along with the Pharisees, formed one of the major political and religious parties in Palestine. The Sadducees were all wealthy people. They were aristocrats, uh, landowners. Uh, they were the upper crust in Jewish society. Uh, they were sort of the Republicans of uh, their day. And uh, they held the, not only was the high priest a Sadducee, he was always a Sadducee at this time, but uh, they not only held the position of high priest, but also the executive positions in the Sanhedrin. So they, even though they were small in number compared to the population, they exercised a great deal of power and a great deal of influence. They were in the majority in the Sanhedrin. And it's this group that calls the apostles to account. Now, the Sadducees, unlike the Pharisees, did not believe in the resurrection. So this theological dispute gave them kind of a focus for their antagonism because the apostles were running all over Jerusalem uh, talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and offering that same hope to the people. And this upset the Sadducees who did not believe in uh, the resurrection or in even spiritual the existence of spiritual beings. But uh, Luke is careful to point out that they were not motivated by theological uh, disagreement, but by jealousy. It says they were filled with envy and jealousy. Here were these uh, lay people, untrained, uh, uneducated, had gone to none of the right schools, had none of the proper degrees, and yet people were flocking to them in droves. Uh, they were developing an enthusiastic uh, following, and, and Jerusalem was abuzz with the reports of what these apostles were doing. And this uh, upset the uh, Sadducees. They were jealous of their popularity and the kind of impact they'd had in Jerusalem. And this is what moved them to try to squash this, uh, the apostles' activity. Now, unfortunately, we see the same tendency uh, uh, that we see in the Sadducees here among branches of the church today. I've particularly observed this uh, jealousy in pastors who will often uh, be very threatened by gifted people in their own uh, in their own congregation, and will uh, will seek to uh, place obstacles in in their path to keep them from developing a successful ministry and a following in the church. But we uh, we must not do that. Uh, we must not be filled with jealousy or envy, but encourage the development of gifts and the expansion of of ministries. Now they are thrown in jail as a result of this instigation of the Sadducees but they are not in jail to stay, as Luke goes on to say in verse 19. But an angel of the Lord, during the night, opened the gates of the prison, and taking them out, he said, Go your way, stand, and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. 
So he tells them to go right back to the place where you were arrested yesterday and speak the whole message of this life. That is, speak the whole truth. Don't pull any punches. Don't, uh, out of fear, don't uh, fail to proclaim the truth, but speak the whole message of this life. And upon hearing this in verse 21, they entered into the temple about daybreak and began to teach. Despite the risk, uh, they obeyed the message of the angel. Now, this understandably, the, this uh, nocturnal uh, deliverance was bound to create some problems for the Sadducees, and it does. Now, when the high priest and his associates, in verse 21, had come, they called the council together and all the senate of the sons of Israel and sent orders to the prison house for them to be brought. But the officers who came did not find them in the prison, and they returned and reported back, saying, We found the prison house locked quite securely and the guards standing at the doors, but when we had opened up, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed, understandably, about them as to what would come of this. But someone came and reported to them, Behold, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain went along with the officers and proceeded to bring them back without violence, for they were afraid of the people, lest they should be stoned. Just as a point of clarification, they were not worried that the people might be stoned, but that the people might stone them, just to clear that up. And uh, when they had brought them, they stood them before the council. The uh, whole council, the Sanhedrin, was called together by the high priest. That was his prerogative to convene the Senate. This uh, Sanhedrin was the governing body in Jewish life. They were the supreme authority in religious matters, the supreme authority in legislative matters, the supreme authority in civil matters, in administrative matters. They were uh, like the... Uh, uh, the Supreme Court and the House of Representatives and the Senate and the White House and the National Council of Churches all rolled up into one. So they had tremendous authority in uh, Jewish life. And it's this group that the apostles must give an accounting to. Uh, they consisted, the Sanhedrin consisted, by the way, not only of Sadducees, the high priest and other executives, but of Pharisees as well. We will be introduced to them in a moment and also scribes, scholars in the law. And there were a total of 70 of these who would convene and decide issues such as this. And they had authority in Judea as long as they didn't upset the Romans. They were given pretty much a free hand to uh, run the political and social life of the country. Uh, there's a mention in verse 24 of the temple guard with its captain. This was a small security force that the Romans allowed the Sanhedrin to have, and they were able to keep order in the city and police the temple courts to take care of any rowdies or riots. There's a reference in verse 24 to the chief priests. Uh, we often find this word in the singular. It's earlier in this passage, it's translated high priest. Here it's in the plural, and this is a reference to the high priest and the other ruling uh, Sadducees, the other uh, priests uh, who were Sadducees who, ex who held executive positions in the council. So these are the ones that are, are taking these steps. So they are arrested again. Uh, the 
temple police had to be careful because of their popularity. They had to ask the apostles to come along quietly, which they did. And so they're brought before the council, into the council chambers, and there before the assembled leaders of the nation of Israel, the high priest, the justice of the Supreme Court, begins to grill them. And this is what he does starting in verse uh, 27. The high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders, notice the emphasis there, strict orders, not to continue teaching in this name. And behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. So here's a clear directive from the chief uh, legislative judicial body of the country ordering them to cease and desist the proclamation of the gospel. But in verse 29, Peter and the apostles answered and said, We must obey God rather than men. They had received clear instructions from God through the angel to continue preaching. They had been commanded to go back into the temple courts and preach the whole message of this life. The ruling governing body says you must not go into the temple and continue teaching the message of this life. Peter and the apostles were faced with a choice. To whose voice do we listen? Peter's answer is ringingly clear. We must obey God rather than men. And that's the basic uh, biblical position that we are to adopt on issues like this. Uh, Any time that obedience to human authority necessitates disobedience to God, we must disobey human authority. If the issue is a clear choice between obedience to God or obedience to men, and obedience to men means that we must be disobedient to God, then we have no choice. We must obey God and take the consequences that might occur. Now, I would stress that this needs to be in issues where there is a clear command of Scripture. Uh, we may not like uh, the, the tax load that we're asked to bear. We may not care much for how much the government requests of us. And we may not like some of the things that they do. But we must uh, pay what's due. Because we can pay our taxes, even though we don't like it, without becoming disobedient to God. And as long as we can obey both God and human authority, we must do that. We must obey both human authority and divine authority. Uh, We may not like certain of the laws in our city or civil ordinances or resolutions of the city council, but nevertheless, as long as we can obey them, even if it's inconvenient, silly, and distasteful, uh, we must, as long as it does not involve involve disobedience to God. But where the issue of obedience to God is at stake, then that's the choice we must make despite the uh, repercussions. In uh, 1949, China underwent a revolution and the new government there clamped down very severely on the church. They uh, publicly insisted that the church must no longer meet together. Well, the Christians in China realized that the scriptures commanded them to assemble together. The writer of Hebrews says you must not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. So the Chinese Christians, in obedience to God, disobeyed the Chinese authorities and continued to meet together uh, secretly, undercover, but they continued to meet in obedience to God's word. 
And when Westerners were able to go back in in the middle uh, 70s, uh, we found that there were over 50,000 uh, house churches in, in China. The uh, church was flourishing and growing because they had obeyed God rather than men. Remember one time in my life where I was faced with a similar choice. I, uh, one summer, I had determined that I was going to help pay my college tuition by selling encyclopedias. So I went through a week-long training program and learned all the fold-outs and fold-overs and transparencies and could handle that like a machete. And so our first, uh, our first uh, sales blitz, our manager took us out to one of the farm communities in the San Joaquin Valley there and dropped me off at... Uh, four o'clock and said, I'll be back for you at nine. Go out and sell those encyclopedias. So I uh, marched up to the first door, knocked on the door, and I launched into my sales pitch. And I hadn't gotten about 30 seconds into it before the guy interrupted me. And he asked me, do you have a uh, license to uh, sell door-to-door in this community? I was the first I'd heard of that. And I said, well, no, I really don't. And he said, well, you can't pedal door-to-door without a license. I said, is that really true? He says, yes, it is. So I made a phone call and found out, sure enough, that was the uh, case. So it was clear then, despite the insistence of my boss that I spend five hours selling encyclopedias, it was time for me to quit. So I packed up my little display case and sat in a coffee shop until he came to pick me up. Well, when he picked me up at night, he asked me how many encyclopedias I had sold, and I told him, well, I hadn't sold any. How many houses did you go to? Well, I went to one. And he... uh, you know, he had a commission writing on this deal, so he got very irate with me. And I was, I was the first guy he picked up, so he just chewed on my ear for the next half hour to the next pickup point. And I just had to quietly explain to him that I simply had no choice. I had to obey God rather than man. The choice was clear. And I must say I felt uh, a little bit uh, better about my decision when we got to the next pickup point and we couldn't find the guy because he was in the uh, county jail for (laughs) selling door-to-door without a license. So, So when the issue is a clear case of obedience to God versus disobedience and it's a biblical command, then we have no choice. Uh... I would distinguish this uh, from matters of conscience. Uh, there are many areas where, of life where the scripture allows us to work out our own conviction before God. Uh, Paul mentions in Romans 14 at least three examples, whether or not we eat meat sacrificed to idols, whether or not we uh, drink intoxicating beverages, and whether or not we observe the Sabbath. And Paul is clear in that section that in each of these areas, the scripture gives us the freedom to determine before God what our own conviction is. Now, when we have worked out a position that uh, we feel we must hold before God in one of these areas, then we should hold to that uh, because of our conscience before God. We must not go against our conscience regardless of what uh, men are challenging us to do. But we must be aware that when we do this, this is an individual matter before God, and we must not try to impose our own view, which leads us to disobedience on others. Um, The status of conscientious objector is one example. Uh, We're not uh, commanded anywhere in the the Scripture to be conscientious objectors. That's an issue that God uh, leaves to us to work out before him. Some of our brothers have taken that position and are willing to suffer certain legal penalties uh, if they are, are asked to serve. Uh, another example, uh, 
uh, that, uh, well, let's see, let me think about that just for one more minute. Uh, and so in that case, we need to, if we are called to be a conscientious objector in our own conscience before God, then we must pursue that and hold to that, uh, but not impose that standard on others. Uh, use of the Sabbath is another example that comes to mind. If you've seen the movie Chariots of Fire, you will realize that that was the chief moral tension in the life of one of the heroes, is whether or not to race on Sunday. Well, the scriptures are clear that we're given an option in this regard. Uh, Paul says in Romans 14 that one man holds one day above another, another man regards all days alike. So it is permissible for Christians to have a very high view of Sunday and to conform their behavior accordingly. And he did the right thing in that film. Uh, he held to his conscience despite the pressure from men and did what was right because he must have obeyed God rather than men. And yet we must be clear in issues of conscience. We must be careful that we do not impose this standard on other, on other people. Now this is helpful too. This concept of obeying God rather than men is helpful in relationships with employers fellow employees, with uh, parents, and uh, others. Uh, we must obey God uh, rather than men. Uh, I've got a friend whose father was in medical practice and had a lifelong ambition for his son to become a surgeon and put a great deal of pressure on him to move in that direction, even offered to pay his entire way through medical school if he would pursue the medical profession. But my friend, also named Brian, uh, was convinced that God was calling him into the ministry. And he felt the necessity to pursue that line. And when he made it clear to his father that this was the direction his life was moving in response to God's call in his life, his father practically uh, disowned him. And to this day, there are some, uh, some very bitter feelings there. But what Brian had to explain to his father is that I must obey God rather than men. I must do what God is calling me to do rather than obey the counsel or the advice of men. I worked as a waiter for a period of my life, and I uh, encountered uh, kind of an interesting challenge uh, along this line. If you've ever worked as a waiter or a waitress, you know that you must report your tips to the IRS. But since a good percentage of tips are in cash, you can report uh, fraction of what you actually take in in tips because the IRS has no way to uh, to check your figures since you're dealing in cash. Well, I worked on a shift of about 12 other waiters, and every week, we on Friday, we had to post our tips for the week. And all our names were on a big sheet in the end of the hallway, and we had to write down the total number of tips we'd taken in any given week. There was one other Christian that worked there besides myself, and we discussed this and realized that it was uh, important for our integrity that we put down everything that we made, right down to the last penny. Well, nobody else on our shift uh, had the same concern, and they would report the bare minimum that they could get by with and keep the IRS off their back. So you'd come to the tip sheet at the end of the hallway, and it would say, uh, Donna Winters, $21.74, and... Um, you know, uh, Dana Andrews, $31.14. And then you'd come to Frank's name, Frank Lamas, $174.16. And then uh, my name would have a similar figure, and then they would drop again. Well, uh, understandably, the people we worked with were concerned about this because we were rocking the boat, see? We were messing with a good thing. 
And so they began to put some pressure on us. Uh, look, you, you could spoil this for the whole bunch by, uh, by being so honest. Can't you just bend those figures a little? Everybody's doing it. And so Frank and I both had to explain, uh, you know, calmly, without self-righteousness or judgment, that we simply had no choice. We had to obey God rather than men. And this is the counsel that, that Peter is giving us here. I have another friend who went into a training program with a large department store chain in California, very rapidly growing, uh, just massive opportunities for advancement. And he realized shortly after he had gone to work for them that they were going to demand uh, 70 to 80 hours a week out of them, and that was going to be the characteristic demand that his employer would make on him. And as he evaluated this demand in light of the biblical priority on the family, he realized that he could not uh, obey his employer in this regard. And his only choice was to quit the job. They weren't willing to bend, and so he was forced to resign. And he wrote them a letter which said this very same thing. It was a, a very uh, respectful letter, not condemning or judgmental, but in this letter he simply explained that he could not continue in the employee of the company because of his priorities. He said, I must obey God rather than men. So this is the standard that the scripture sets for us. Now, why is it that we should make this choice? Why should we obey God rather than men? Why should we not do something dishonest or unethical for our boss or lie to defend our husband's tax returns? Why should we not do this? Why should we obey God instead? Well, Peter tells us why in verses 30 to 32. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Peter's point here is we must simply obey God because of who he is and because of what he has done for us. Uh, God is the one who has conquered the problem of death in raising Jesus from the dead. He is the one who has given us a new prince, a new leader in life, who has given us a savior, one who comes into life to deliver us from bondage and to set us free. He is the one who has given us repentance and forgiveness of sins. He is the one that has answered the, the universal problem of guilt in the human heart. He's given us an answer for that. He is the one that has imparted to us the Holy Spirit to give us a new resource, a new capacity, a new strength to, to live daily life with uh, kindness and love and poise. And Peter says, that person I've got to obey. And that's the same basis on which we Uh, we must obey God rather than men because God has won the right to, uh, to our obedience by the grace to which he's extended us in the person of Christ. Now, when Peter says in the end of verse 32 that God gives the Holy Spirit to those who obey him, the Sadducees understood uh, by that statement that he was implying that they did not have the Holy Spirit because they were not obeying God. And understandably, this upset them. It was not the most tactful thing to say, although it was definitely the honest thing. And when they heard this in verse 33, they were cut to the quick and were intending to slay them. They said, enough of this, uh, off with their heads, was the response of the Sadducees. 
Well, fortunately for them, uh, we find in verse 34, a certain Pharisee named Gamaliel came to their defense. Now, the Pharisees were the other uh, major party in uh, Jewish life. They were the party of the people. Uh, There were about 6,000 of them at this time. They were immensely popular among the people because of their effort to relate the law to the issues of everyday life. They were tradesmen, craftsmen. Paul was a tent maker, for example, who was a Pharisee. They rubbed shoulders with the people, and they were immensely popular among the people. And Gamaliel was the most respected and honored teacher of the law. So he was the most honored and respected member of the most uh, attractive party to the people. So naturally, the Sadducees would think a long time before going against his counsel because of the risk of public opposition. Now, the Pharisees, unlike the Sadducees, believed in the resurrection. And this was a point, of, uh, a point that they shared with the apostles in common. The apostles were proclaiming the resurrection. The Pharisees, including Gamaliel, believed in that, and that made them hesitant to bring the hammer down too hard on these early Christians. And so Gamaliel stands and comes to their defense. Gamaliel stood up in the council and gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you propose to do with these men. For some time ago, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men joined up with him. And he was slain. And all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. And this man, Judas of Galilee, rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished, and all those who followed him were scattered. And so, in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or action should be of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them or else you may even be found fighting against God. Gamaliel mentions a couple of uh, examples with which the Sanhedrin would be familiar. This Thutis guy in verse 36 uh, evidently was a revolutionary about the time that Herod the Great died. This was shortly after Christ was born in about 4 B.C. When Herod the Great died, there was a scrabble for the throne in his uh, wake. And this Thutis was one of the men who rose up to try to seize the throne in Israel by force. And Gamaliel reminds them, despite the fact that he aroused a public following, he soon was slain in battle and his movement uh, came to nothing. Then he mentions uh, Judas in verse 37. A couple of, if you have twins, I'd, I'd recommend those names, Thutis and Judas, if you want some biblical names. This uh, Judas... <clears throat> Judas rose to prominence about 10 years later when the Romans took direct control of Palestine. And when they did that, they began to take a census of all other inhabitants of Palestine in order to tax them. Well, this Judas did not want to pay taxes to a foreign government, so he started a tax revolt, very similar to our American Revolution. And uh, Gamaliel points out that despite the fact that he too gathered a following, his uh, movement soon came to an end, soon came to naught. He too was killed and his followers were scattered. So Gamaliel's point is that God, and, and Luke includes this council because it's correct, 
His point is that God will sustain any work that's of him. And he will resist and overthrow any work that is not of him. So his advice to the Senate is let's wait and see. Let's give uh, this thing time in order for God's uh, will in this matter to become clear. If this is from God, then he will support it. He'll maintain it. He will uh, he'll, uh, he'll keep it going. He will continue to prosper it and to flourish. And if we resist that, we will be fighting against God himself. If, on the other hand, this movement is not from God, Emmanuel points out, he'll overthrow it. He'll dismantle it. He'll bring it to an end. He'll crush it. And so on that basis, Gamaliel appeals to the Senate to leave these men alone. Now, this counsel is wise counsel for us to remember that as we look around at churches and ministries and conference centers and Christian camps and various mission organizations, the same thing holds true. If they are of God, if they are depending upon God and doing the work that God has called them to do, he'll support them. He'll keep them growing. He'll keep them flourishing. He'll keep them prospering. If they ever cease to be of God, that is, if they cease to depend upon him, to seek him first, if they ever become consumed with ambition and uh, self-centeredness, then God will dismantle it. He will allow it to be, uh, to be uh, destroyed and to, to come to an end. Uh, God will support any work that's of him, and he will oppose any work that is not. I think this can be encouraging to us when we think of of uh, men that uh, write columns in the paper that we do not like. And when we, uh, when we uh, look at the proliferation of cults in this country, it's easy for us to begin to wring our hands in despair and to fret and to uh, become frantic. And yet Gamaliel's advice is good for us today as it was for the Sanhedrin then. If this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. In God's time he will see that these movements come to an end, that their uh, ability to function is taken away from them. And we can rest in, in God's timing and God's wisdom to do that when he sees fit. Now the uh, Sanhedrin, Luke tells us in verse 40, took Gamaliel's advice, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them. They were going to let them alone, but not that alone. They... <coughs> They flogged them and ordered them to speak no more in the name of Jesus and then released them. So they got the same command that they had before. They ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus. So again, they received a direct command from the governing authorities. So what did they do in verse 41? They went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple... And from house to house, that is, in public meetings and in home Bible studies and growth groups, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. So they continued to disobey because they had to obey God rather than men. I would point out, too, that the apostles' response to pressure from the civil authorities, uh, they went their way rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer for his name. And they were flogged. It was 39 stripes with leather tongs with pieces of stone embedded in them. It flayed the skin. And yet they went their way rejoicing that they had been considered worthy of suffering for the name of Jesus. Now, if uh, as I look around the body today, the church, 
I see that typically when we encounter resistance from civil authorities, we begin to scream and complain and we begin uh, jabbering about the uh, First Amendment and we grab for the nearest lawyer. That's the way we respond to that. But the apostles are the example. If we should ever encounter this kind of resistance from civil authorities, our basic response is to be one of joy that God has considered us worthy for this kind of opposition. Well, I think there's a good uh, lesson for us in this. We may not uh, encounter this week the direct choice between obeying God rather than men, but if we ever do, our choice is clear. We must obey God rather than men regardless of the uh, consequences. And in the meantime, if we don't have a choice to make between obeying men and obeying God, let's just go ahead and obey God. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for the examples that the apostles are to us, uh, the pattern of life that they, they set for us by depending upon the Spirit. I pray that you will give each of us the courage to obey you rather than men, if we are ever presented with that choice. Uh, give us the courage to, in areas where your commands are not clear, give us the courage to pursue the convictions that we have worked out before you. And I pray, Lord, that you will give us a willingness to accept joyfully and willingly any uh, opposition or uh, antagonism that we encounter as a result and regard ourselves uh, fortunate to be considered worthy for suffering for your sake. We ask you to live in us this week to make us people who obey you, uh, that our lives, too, would be held in admiration and respect by the watching world, and that our lives, by their quality of love and integrity and righteousness, would draw others to you. We thank you for your provision for this. In Christ's name, amen.